Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on The Art of Range are Mark Gosler and Carter Cruz. Mark is the Vice President of Ranch Operations for Turner Enterprises, uh, and we sort of met several months ago in the process of lining up plenary speakers to talk about conservation through ranching for the Society for Range Management's annual meeting. Uh, And Mark's lead scientist, Carter Cruz, who is also with me today, uh, ended up speaking for the SRM because of the flavor of the rest of the plenary panel on ranching. Uh, But there's an awful lot to talk about here, so I'm delighted to be talking with Mark and Carter today at the Turner Enterprises office in Bozeman, Montana. Mark and Carter, welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, Being a ranch manager is not a terribly small niche, but managing the people who run nearly two million acres worth of lands that, you know, really do uh, double or triple duty as ranch, experimental range, and wildlife area is pretty unique. Uh, Can you Talk a bit about what the job is and what was your pathway to being uh, VP of Ranch Operations for Ted Turner? Well, in our operations, the uh, the Ranch Management Corps, the staff on the ranches, uh, obviously make everything work. Getting the right people in the right place um, is, is really the primary function of our oversight and office. It's probably maybe one of the more difficult things we do is finding qualified personnel and the, the direction or, or mantra of our ranching operations is a little different. We're not just production. Um, we strive to uh, marry, if you will, or find a balance between commerce and conservation. We, we need to be solvent and we need to pay our bills, make money, um, but we don't want to do that at the expense of the conservation values of the properties that we manage. And so um, finding qualified personnel that, that, that can understand and sign on to um, uh, that mission, if you will, for our operations is not easy. And so it, it's, um, however, we have been able to put together a very good staff of, of ranch management. Our core ranch management personnel, I think, are as good as anyone in the industry, and they tend to... Uh, at least initially be a, a little broader base in their view of our of what an ag operation is, or they quickly learn and adopt that broader view of t- having consideration for the conservation and conservation values of our operations as well. And Carter, maybe say again what you do for Turner Enterprises, for those that didn't hear the plenary talk, which will be quite a few. Yeah, yeah, I'm... Uh, my current title is the Director of Conservation Science for, for Turner Enterprises, and that is, is a job that has evolved over the course of my tenure here. I, I'm trained in the aquatic sciences and started as an aquatic scientist with, with Turner Enterprises. And then over time, as our biological programs have grown and our biological staff has grown, I've kind of expanded oversight of, of what we call the Turner Biodiversity Program and uh, work closely with the Turner Endangered Species Fund um, to implement uh conservation projects and now as we we kind of turn a new into a new phase here of Turner Enterprises really uh, taking a concerted focus on research and, and the science uh, across the across both our conservation and ranching operations um, my job is expanding yet again a little bit to to coordinate that that broader spectrum of science that we're looking to to work through mm-hmm. and you've been here for about 20 years It'd be 21 years in in June yeah and what did you do before that? Well, I wasn't too long. You still of, wet behind the ears. Wasn't too long out of school, <laughs> but I did. I did take a job at the federal government. I was actually working for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, before I I came to Turner Enterprises. I always envisioned a, a, a kind of a government, state, or federal job, which a lot of natural resource positions are. And yeah, um, am profoundly grateful that I stumbled into this opportunity twenty years ago. Yeah, I think it's a pretty cool role. To what extent does aquatic sciences overlap with fisheries biology? The, it's one and the same. Yep, yep. And 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 initially there was a um, 
it's still one of the two largest cutthroat, native cutthroat trout restoration projects that's ever been completed. Um, that project was in its infancy here on the Flying D Ranch, just outside of Bozeman for uh, West Slope Cutthroat Trout, and they needed a they needed someone to, to lead that project, and that was mm-hmm. that was kind of my in with with Turner Enterprises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mark, what was your pathway? What was your, I guess, career path before you ended up here? Sure, I I, uh, I was raised on a family ranch in Colorado. And uh, uh, about the time I got out of high school, my dad sold the ranch, relocated to Idaho, and uh, I, I helped him move and ended up going to the University of Idaho. I uh, got a degree in range livestock management and uh, started on a career of large ranch management right out of college. I was lucky and, and got with someone who kind of mentored me for ranch management. I learned a lot very early and worked in the ranch management. I managed several um, fairly good sized ranch operations uh, from the time I was out of college until 1999 when I had the opportunity to come to work for Turner Enterprises. Um, I, my background is, you know, um, beef cattle production and, and cattle ranching and I did make the transition to bison from there and I've been with Ted now for 21 years and uh, managed two of his uh, large ranch operations. The first one, the Flying D Ranch here at Bozeman, which is about you know th- uh, 113,000 acres and has has about four or five thousand bison on it through the course of the year. And then uh, I managed it for seven years, and then transferred to New Mexico and managed Bermejo Park Ranch, which is our largest, more, most complex ranch. It's uh, 565,000 acres. A hmm. uh, very high wildlife component to it, a guest service operation, a timber operation, gas well operation, as well as having some bison on the ranch. And I was there seven years and then had the opportunity to come back and uh, lead the management office here in Bozeman in 2014. Yeah, I think we might have met when I visited probably the Flying D at the tail end of my undergraduate degree also at the University of Idaho. And I think you might've been the one managing the ranch. I recall there's several things about the differences between how bison and cattle behave that I'm pretty sure you were the one talking about. It, yes, you know, in, uh, with my background of cattle management, bison, it intrigued me. It's one of the reasons I was kind of drawn to come to work for Ted. Um, the, you know, the, the science, if you will, of managing bison on um, large ranch landscape was pretty new and they're a different animal than cattle. They're similar in some regards, but different in others. And I was intrigued by those differences and kind of rose to the challenge of, of settling in and trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to come back to that in a few minutes. I wanted to ask, uh, I know that Turner Enterprises is one of the largest, uh, you know, single landowners in the country. And, and saying that somebody else is larger, these things are not all quite equal. You guys have multiple properties, as you mentioned. I think you said there's 15? Yes. Is, is Turner the largest single, largest single landowner in the country? And who are some of the other ones? And are they doing similar work? The, the, uh, the other large landowners, uh, John Malone, I think, is the largest landowner. Um, he does have multiple uh, traditional cattle ranches. And, uh, but he also has some very large tracts of timber like in Maine. Mm. Um, I don't know a lot about their operations. I, I believe they're managed with some conservation ethic interwoven into their production cycle as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really familiar with a lot of the other large landowners other than Mr. Malone, who is a, who is a friend and a confidant of Mr. Turner's. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I read... Or maybe you said, Carter, in your talk for the SRM that it was about the late 1990s that Ted Turner started purchasing land, I think mostly with the goal of conserving open space for its own sake, as well as uh, you know keeping large chunks of contiguous wildlife habitat intact, especially for a certain um, you know, imperiled species like bison. Um, you know, people probably would feel like it's also an investment in the sense that land is a pretty good place to put good money, but you don't realize the appreciation on that land unless you sell it. And I gather that's probably not the 
the goal. So can either of you say a little bit more about what the organization's goals are with owning land uh, and running both bison and cattle on it? Because as you said, I think that is unique in the world of, uh, you know, large land investment. Well, from Ted's early acquisitions of, of ranches, um, he wanted to figure out a way to ranch with native species, i.e. bison, not cattle, and to uh, ranch in a way that would be sensitive to conservation values so that the conservation values of large ranch landscapes would not degrade and, if possible, would actually get better. And uh, so that was the, the early mission that he put us on. And uh, our, our early mission statement uh, up until very recently has been to manage Turner lands in an economically sensitive and ecologically su sustainable manner while conserving native species and habitats. And so we, that was our mission statement for a very long time. Um, we're, Ted now, he's at the pinnacle of his career and, and looking ahead, he's, he wants his ranches to continue. He wants them to be examples of how to ranch with native species mm. and have a high conservation ethic. I'll maybe let Carter talk a little bit about the, the two organizations that, that uh, we're going to move into eventually. Yeah, we're um, <clears throat> one correction. Ted started purchasing ranches in the late 1980s. Mm, uh, I think okay. you mentioned 1990s, but um, and yeah, I was in a, a pretty pretty uh, significant growth curve for about 15 years in terms of adding acreage and, and things. But yeah, as Mark said, we're mm. you know we're trying to find this balance, or or you know really have been working on the balance of economic sustainability and environmental sensitivity. You know since the kind of the early formation of a, of a mission for Turner Ranches. And um, as we look to the future, the intent right now, at least, is to most of the properties would flow into one of two uh, charitable organizations, either the Turner Conservation Trust, uh, which is focused essentially on, again, this balance of, of large scale ranching and, and conservation and, and making that uh, work in an economically sustainable framework. Uh, and, and then the second organization would be what's what's been called the Turner Institute of Eco-Agriculture. It's an agriculture research organization. So a portion of the properties will also go into that. We'll have very similar objectives in terms of, again, this economic sustainability, environmental sensitivity, but but with a, with a certain research focus to look at, you know, what, how can we um, better understand some of these back to questions about bison as an ecological engineer or, or you know, ecosystem services and uh, the, uh, the, the ways we can sustain large landscapes uh, in a ranching uh, economic sort of framework, but, but still accomplish a lot of these conservation goals. So that's, that, those are the two organizations that the, uh, the properties will likely go into as we move into the future. So really, like Mark said, trying to trying to carry forth what we've been doing, um, mm -hmm. and and maybe bring a little more muscle to that in terms of research and science, mm -hmm. and promote the ideas more broadly. Yeah, yeah. Can you, in your plenary talk you gave a a summary of of what the Turner Ranch properties are right now? Can you give a brief overview of those? I don't know whether or not you can do it off the top of your head, but you mentioned at least a couple of them: the Flying D and the Vermejo. You mentioned. Um, yeah, say a little bit more about what some of the other properties are and where they're located geographically. There's a, currently there's three ranches in Montana. Flying D Ranch was the first large ranch purchase that Ted did back in 1989. A very traditional cattle ranch that that he bought and then converted to bison production. Uh, there's two smaller ranches in Montana: Snowcrest Ranch and Red Rock Ranch. Both have some bison on them, both have some recreational components, fishing, which is a, a very important part of Ted's land acquisition early on. He liked to fish, and so he liked buying you know, ranch landscapes that, that had fishing and or aquatic mm -hmm. attributes to them. Um, if we move into the plains, there's six ranches in the sand hills of Nebraska. It is kind of the heart of our quote unquote bison engine. Sandhills, Nebraska are an incredible grassland mm -hmm. and uh, very productive. And so that's where a, a large part of our bison herd is centered on those six ranches. There are two ranches in South Dakota as well, at Pure, South Dakota, 
Bad River Ranch and uh, Standing Butte Ranch. Uh, both of them um, are were traditional cattle ranches that again were purchased and converted to running bison. The bison do very well in, in Montana, uh, the Sandhills, Nebraska, and uh, South Dakota. The, they just fit that ecosystem and climate very well and they're very productive. Uh, we have one ranch at Medicine Lodge, Kansas, the Z-Bar Ranch. It has a lot of conservation, uh, conservation projects and attributes to it. Also runs bison as well. And uh, it's in the, the Fl Flint Hills? Red Hills. Yeah. Red okay. Hills. Hmm. Um, if we, and then we have three operations in New Mexico. Vermeil Park Ranch is our largest acreage ranch operation. It's on the Colorado border. Actually, part of the ranch is in Colorado, so it's technically in two states. And a uh, very iconic um, ranch. It was a old Mexican land grant that was let in 1842. So it's wow. 565,000 acres of private land in a block. Huh. And uh, an incredible landscape that goes from the, the short grass prairie of 6,500 feet to the alpine tundra of 13,200 feet. Mm. Uh, five different eco zones on that ranch. It has a smaller herd of bison and it has a lot of wildlife attributes and conservation um, project on it. Further south in New Mexico, we have the Ladder Ranch and the Armanderas Ranch. The Armanderas Ranch is on the northern tip of the Chihuahuan Desert, and the Ladder Ranch is on the southern tip of the Rockies, a very mountainous, rugged desert ranch. Both those ranches have small herds of bison on them. Both those ranches have very significant conservation project on them as well. Hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, and how many bison total are on across all of those? Uh, we, we, the numbers go up and down, but uh, it's about 45,000. 45, 46,000 bison is our total bison herd currently. And on the ones where you have cattle as well, are the cattle and bison uh, together? They commingled? We have no cattle. Uh, you, you okay. Know, it gets back to our mission statement, native species. Yeah. And, and, and Ted has always okay. wanted his ranches to work with native species. And so we, we have no cattle uh, production on our operations. It's all bison. Wow. What would you say are some of the major challenges with managing that much land? The, the major challenge is really, first and foremost, get around to hiring the right people. Um, it, it is, once you get up above a certain scale, it's it's the uh, quality and of people that you can put on the ground, their knowledge, their experience, their expertise, and uh, their ability to manage people. Because on a, a large ranch, it's not a it's not a one person or one family ranch. It's most of our ranches are large enough um, to have three or four um, employees involved with their families. And the Sand Hills of Nebraska, those ranches are all you know fifty to seventy thousand acres. It takes two or three uh, or or more uh, employees to manage them. So. So you've got to hire that management expertise and they have to um, be able to hire and manage good people. And that's what makes the operations work. Uh, being able to dovetail into conservation side of the operation, uh, working with Carter and the, the people that work under him with one identifying conservation attributes that we need to work on, um, manage toward maybe even using our bison to manage toward a conservation goal. There's a crossover there that's not, not normal in most ranch operations. And so finding people that um, can, one, kind of accept that, that that's part of the duties, and two, understand and actually buy in, if you will, yeah. to knowing that we may give up production in an area or two to enhance conservation attributes on some of the properties. And so it's, it's the quality of the people. Um, the character and integrity are the number one thing we want to hire for, followed quickly by experience, education, and just flexibility and finding folks that are flexible. Yeah, that assessment reminds me of a, a sociological study that I think was conducted out of UC Davis a few years ago where they were trying to identify what are the common management factors in ranches that had really healthy riparian areas. and fish populations, uh, healthy stream zones. And I, I think I'm recalling correctly, and I'll apologize to somebody if I got the location of the study wrong or the conclusions, but my 
recall is that the take-home message was that aside from any specific management practice or principle, by far the, the single common denominator in ranches that had healthy riparian zones was having a manager that was committed to achieving a healthy riparian area. And one of the ways they measured that was, you know, man hours of attention to livestock management and somebody who, you know, was, had these end goals in mind and was on a daily basis managing toward them. Uh, that seems to fit with, with what you're saying. It, it certainly does. And, uh, you know, management, uh, livestock grazing, you know, ungulate, large ungulate grazing is, is a management tool. And uh, uh, our managers see it as such. They recognize that. It's not a, it's, it can be a means to an end for several things. One is, you know, red meat production for money. That, that's one of them. But the other is, is using that grazing management to enhance habitat for other species, if you will. And so um, that is key. I think, Carter, you said in your talk that uh, the all of the ranch properties are self-sustaining economically. Mark, you mentioned that just a minute ago, too. Uh, how and why was that decision made? And, you know, are those internal reasons or external as in public relations? And is that common in, in the world of corporate ranching? Well, just a, a minor clarification, but an important one. The goal is to be economically sustainable. Um, not all of our operations are. Mm. Uh, some are more economically sustainable than others. And there is an overlap so that, that some of the ones that are more economically sustainable um, help cover some of the expenses on the ones that are not. Yeah. Um, when it gets to uh, livestock production, it really gets down to how much grass can you grow? How effectively and efficiently can right. you graze it and turn it into a, a product that you can sell? The, the drier ranches down south are at a disadvantage. Uh, drought is con chronic. Uh, you know, stocking rates are much lower, mm -hmm. um, and yet you've got significant overhead you still have to carry. So not all of our ranches cash flow every year. Yeah. Many of them do. And so we're, we're working with an average. And is it a, a bigger challenge or is it helpful that what you're marketing is bison and not beef? I can see that potentially being worth more money, but also a challenge to sell maybe. The, 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 the bison market has been higher in the last 10 or 12 years than the beef market typically. Hmm. And so um, net per animal has been much higher than if we would have had beef animals. But you're right, the, the marketing and moving that much uh, bison is uh, is the challenge. And we, we worked with some um, very good marketers. Uh, essentially, we are, we are a grower and we tend to own our animals until the time of harvest and then we sell to essentially wholesalers who then fabricate the product and move it on into the retail sector. Uh, a large part of our production does go through a, a major partner in Denver, um, and it is a grain exposed or grain finished bison product for high-end retail restaurants, of which Ted has, has had 40-some restaurants. And so um, those our restaurants buy from that wholesaler. Mm -hmm. And a recent initiative for us is to get into the grass finished bison market. And we're working with uh, about four right now, uh, very good smaller wholesalers that essentially buy bison that are finished just on grass, never exposed to any grain or grain concentrates. And uh, we see that as a growing venue, it's mm -hmm. become known. So those are the, the two directions we're currently producing for. Yeah, I had not heard of uh, feeding out bison on a, on a relatively large scale like you're doing, at what age would they be going into a feedlot and for what, what is it, 90 days on feed before? Bulls are typically, uh, you know, we run, because we, we own land and we own grass first and foremost, we keep them on grass as long as possible. Yeah. Um, there are age requirements for high-end retail consumption. Typically, um, bulls need to be harvested uh, at 30 months or younger heifers need to be harvested at 36 months or younger in the grain finished market um, and so our bulls would enter the feed yard somewhere between 18 and 24 months and they'd be on feed for 160 to 220 days on average and then then go to harvest our heifers would enter the, the grain finish cycle at 
um, usually you know 28 to 30 months, 26 to 30 months, and be harvested um, usually with 100 to 140 days on feed and be harvested into high high end retail grain market. The grass finished market has much more allowance for age, um, so animals tend yeah. to grow slower on grass, so they're going to be harvested a little bit later. Bulls up to about 36 to 40 months, heifers up to about 45 to 48 months. But those animals are free ranging on grass all the time. And uh, and so there's, those are the kind of the marketing requirements for the two venues that we're currently in. I know I should know this, but the age requirement is that's the a USDA standard to receive a U or a quality grade with a maturity? It, it is not. It's not a USDA standard. The bison okay. industry is very small and uh, the USDA really has no standards. Mm. These are the standards kind of established by in the, the industry, industry by the partners we're working with. Huh. Okay. Uh, maybe to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, what do you see as the, of the benefit of these ranches? to say commercial beef production. And I can imagine that you sometimes feel the stigma of the negative connotations that, you know, commercial ranchers might have with corporate ranching as opposed to family ranching. And you've probably thought that through. So one, how are you received? And, and two, what do you see your role as in the world of commercial beef production? Well, obviously public perception of who we are and what we're doing, I think it shifted from my early involvement with with Turner Enterprises. Um, early on, there was um, a lot of bias against um, Ted, against Bison, against even large corporate ownership of ranches. I've seen that soften in the, particularly in the communities where we've operated. People understand that, look, we're, we're kind of a livestock operation operating differently, but really with a lot of the same goals that traditional ranching has. Um, the size and scale of our operations, I think, are important. Um, we're big enough to be able to be innovative and try some things that a smaller operation really couldn't afford to do. And one of our missions and part of what Carter and his staff helped us with going ahead will be uh, trying different things, getting some significant research that helps educate and lead people into maybe figuring out some new ways to, to operate. And uh, education outreach is important. It's always been important to us. We, we've always done tours on our ranches, tried to explain people how we're operating and even what our outcomes are. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the things that we try that don't work are more important than things we try that do work. Right. And, and so um, that's been always part of our operational ethic, if you will. And I think that's going to be enhanced going ahead with the the organizations that are going to assume these ranches into the future. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about this idea of using bison as ecosystem engineers because that's pretty controversial, uh, you know, in the scientific community, especially among fisheries biologists and wildlife biologists. And I think we have we have this idea that uh, that any kind of intensive large ungulate grazing is maintaining or preventing a plant community from reaching a climax state. And I hesitate even to use the word because I feel like I've just begun to change my own ideas about how that should work. But you mentioned in your talk, Carter, that one of the objectives is to, is to keep portions of landscapes and patches of landscapes uh, in, in different uh, serial stages, if you will, you know, to use terminology that some people would be familiar with. Uh, can you say more about how you see that having happened historically with wild bison herds and to what extent, uh, you know, what are those mechanisms of useful disturbance? Because disturbance is often seen as a bad word, something that we're trying to avoid. We want to graze without disturbance, but any grazing is a disturbance that can be beneficial. That's a lot of questions, but just yeah, that's a that's a full talking. that's a full <laughs> discussion, um, and I th I think it it kind of brings together some of the concepts we we talked about earlier in the sense that you know our mission statement has this inherent tension in a way about the the, the ecological and the economic side of things, and I think I mean this is an example of that where you 
we, we might have, if I can use the word traditional, more traditional approaches to grazing and, and, and the, you know, the guidelines take half, leave half, or, you know, those sorts of things that are out there. And, and when we look at it from the ecological side and we think about how bison, well, and I do want to back up and say, you know, if we talk about bison as, as ecological engineers, I think we can, we can say cattle as ecological engineers too. And your point about how the animals are managed leading to outcomes on the landscape, for instance, in a riparian system, I, I think is, is applied to, to any large managed ungulate. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't sit here today, even though we we know and we think we know there are certain differences between bison and cattle. I, I wouldn't be comfortable sitting here today. I don't know if Mark would saying that a well-managed bison herd can lead to, to better or different outcomes on a landscape than a well-managed cattle herd. Right. I think we, I think we, you know, there are inherent differences in the animals, but how you use them can, can get you can get you to similar places. But I, I totally agree. Yeah, and I, and I think you know a couple of things that are real obvious to us with bison is bison don't like to stay in the riparian areas like cattle do. So mm-hmm. so you can you, the management of the animals are just different from that aspect in terms of potential impacts on riparian areas. Yeah, um, they're moving more often. They'll travel further. To, to get a drink of water, things like that, that you can, you know, you can think about in your management scheme. But, but it, as a biologist, as I think about how bison historically used the plains and how we can integrate that better into our operation, it, it pushes a little bit on the, again, the traditional paradigms of grazing in the sense that, you know, not every overgrazed pasture should be looked at as a, as a bad thing. There are lots of, you know, species that were adapted to, to shortly grazed or bare earth um, in the prairie and the Nebraska sand hills are a perfect example. There's whole, whole communities that are adapted to sand blowouts where there's no grass at all. Mm. And, and in a lot of, um, thought today that sand hills are more stable today and more grass covered today than they ever have been. And um, that might not be a good thing. Well, it's just a different state, right? But, yeah. but as you think about what, what you're trying to do from a conservation perspective, we may want to try and encourage blowouts in some cases so we can, you know, have places for those those mm-hmm. biological communities, and we have done that on occasion. We've we've, uh, in our words, overgrazed pastures and kept them in an overgrazed state in order to you know to encourage certain species to um, recover or, or have places to go. So I think for me, working with the ranch managers, it's it's a thought process of of maybe um, pushing some pastures harder than they might typically in their in their traditional sense of grazing, and then. Mm-hmm maybe resting pastures longer than we, we might want to, to in, a, in an economic sense and, and trying to find that balance between, you know, how do you, how do you get those two extremes on the landscape and still be uh, economically sustainable and, and allow the managers the flexibility that they need with the herds they have to, to move around the landscape and accomplish their, their production goals too. So that's a, that's a really fun challenge. And it's really, in my mind, it's, it's kind of a culmination of, how our operations have evolved over the years from a the early days of land purchase and ranch build out being the focus on the ranching side and, and the biologic side, the conservation side, getting their legs in terms of kind of single species conservation and, and uh, one of the most progressive and large, one of the largest private conservation efforts. I, I think that's, that's out there. Um, now, both those sites coming back together in the sense of, okay, now how do we, we've got these ranches built out. We've got great staff in place that understand the mission. How do we now begin to, to use the animals to further the goals of the conservation side too? We're just, that's, that's fairly new to us. Although we've, we've talked about it a lot over the years. It's, it's really now, I think, um, I don't know, maybe Mark disagrees, but I think it's, it's, it's really coming together in the sense of how do we use these animals now to, and the easy one to talk about is grassland bird communities, for example. Mm-hmm. What, what do we need to look at? What do we need to measure? And how do we need to, to, to use our animals to promote, you know, uh, and help declining grassland bird communities? And it's, it's, we're really just starting to understand, or tr- we're really just starting to try to understand what those mechanisms can be and how we can use our animals differently than we have in the past. And, and I would hold our managers up and, and the, the grazing they've done on our ranches. I, I think our ranches look really good. It's, it's really trying to, to get these concepts of, you know, maybe we'll keep a, a, a certain area in a, what you might think a degraded state from a range condition um, or certain areas in, you know, an, an ungrazed condition 
longer than we might have under a, a more traditional approach to a grazing rotation. And I think, you know, bringing those concepts together and then measuring the, the, the biological community response, I think is, is going to be a, an area of work for us and, and lead into like Mark talked about, you know, having the luxury of being able to make some mistakes or, or trying some really innovative things to understand <clears throat> how we're impacting ecosystem services and, and, you know, some of those other things that might be marketable commodities in, in future markets. Yeah. I was talking with uh, Clayton Marlowe this morning at breakfast, Clayton yeah. from Montana State University <clears throat> and has done a fair bit of work on riparian zones. And we were uh, visiting about ideas of extended rest that are good for riparian areas. You know, say you acquire a ranch that uh, that has unhealthy riparian zones, uh, you know, lack of a riparian gallery of trees in places that ought to have it, downcut channels. Uh, what, how would you begin to manipulate grazing management using bison in those landscapes to get the riparian zone to begin to uh, heal up and build back up? What grazing principles would you be applying in that scenario? Well, I'll take a first quick from the biological aspect and then let Mark respond from more of an animal aspect. But, you know, it's interesting when Ted bought a lot of these ranches, I think his, his gut reaction was, and, and some of the riparian areas were, were fairly degraded and the flying deep was an example that had been, you know, grazed pretty hard and, and had impacts from grazing. And the, and the reaction was, well, let's fence them out and let them be. And, um, and in that moment, that might have been the, the right answer is just get animals off for a while. But it wasn't the long-term answer. I think we started to see issues with decadent willow stands, uh, noxious weeds, or you know uh, things like that. And, and and I think I think I think the uh, range community has evolved in that regard over time too. It's like yeah. you know it's it's again the managed grazing versus just no or full grazing that that really right. impact the health. And, and so we we like using this ranch again for example. A lot of those riparian fences have come out, and and their the managers are you know. Uh, hitting them quick, so real quick grazing with with a yearling herd, for example, uh, grazing in the winter time when when you're not you know the ground is frozen and you aren't going to impact the banks so much and still get some of the benefits. So I think um, you know you just you just have to have that feel as a manager in terms of you know what kind of impact you're having. Um, at Vermejo, the ranch we have down there with with the elk populations and the bison, uh, we just were having. The, the the riparian areas just never had a chance to recover, especially during dry years. So we, you know, we we went in and, and fenced some of those areas, and we've mm -hmm. had you know an amazing response. And I think the the goal has always been once once we get the riparian community back to a place where it can um, can handle some browsing, we'll take those fences down, and then manage the you know manage the grazing the best we can, both with you know wildlife management and, and livestock management. Mark, go ahead. I, I think one of the things I've certainly learned in my career uh, from coming out of college and being trained, you know, somewhat, uh, at least at a lower level for range management is always and never or always and never are two terms that don't fit very well. Um, mm -hmm. We're never going to graze a riparian area and many systems will lead to problems because of overgrowth and decadence and lack of incorporation of, of material back into the system. Um, but always grazing all the time, again, leads to its own set of horrors. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the art of, of, of grass management, I think, with our bison herds and many well-run cattle ranches is mixing it up, creating edge effect. Um, patchiness is important to other species. Um, being in a riparian system and having some animal, animal impact in it, but not overdoing it. And, and having it infrequently or changing time and, and of use and severity of use is a big deal. And that's really what we're focusing on now. We've got we've been doing training with our managers now for almost two years on regenerative principles of grazing, where we try to get animal densities up and, and uh, moderate impact either from severe or light, uh, but getting more plant material to the soil. And again, the focus for us is starting to be more and more on managing the soils uh, and using animals to do that. And it's a fairly new initiative to us, but uh, that's something that we're working on pretty hard. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some examples of uh, maybe success stories with imperiled species that you've seen over the last 20 years? 
Well, we've had we've had what I would consider some pretty significant successes and some pretty uh, flame out failures. But um, uh, I would I would hold our uh, in my world. You know, we we've had a cutthroat trout conservation initiative that's unparalleled, certainly in a, from a private perspective. Um, we're in the final stages of, of finishing about 400 kilometers or 250 miles of, of native cutthroat restoration across uh, four different of our four mm-hmm. properties. Um, trout restoration, not riparian restoration. Trout, trout rest. Yeah, trout. Actually, I realize actually, they go yeah, together, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, they actually focus on, on yeah. the trout in the water. Um, we've had long-term programs with uh, um, gray wolves, um, long-term programs with uh, prairie dog. Blackfoot of ferret communities, mm. um, uh, lot, lots of different fisheries, uh, wetland, wet meadow restoration in the sand hills. Um, I'm missing a whole bunch of them I should be bringing up here. <laughs> uh, it, it, the initiative on Z Bar was. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, lesser prairie chickens mm. uh, at, at the Z Bar, um, uh, frog species, butterfly species, um, you know, really, really running the gamut and, and, and like, but I mentioned earlier, we've been kind of the conservation side because it was the low hanging fruit and, and the way we, we approached it out of the gate, it's kind of been single species focused, you know? Um, and now we're, you know, a lot of those low hanging fruits have been picked and, and, and we've been successful in, in stabilizing or restoring populations. And now we're, you know, taking a step back and saying, okay, probably looking at this more from a community level and, and how we use the, you know, the, the ranch management aspects to, to, to promote the, you know, the conservation of the native species. Um, yeah. I think you used the term a little bit ago, shorebirds or grassland birds. Uh, and it, it seems obvious, but I've seen some places in Washington state where the species that we might call shorebirds disappear because things like, um, Phragmites australis, giant reed, begin to encroach on those water margins, and pretty soon you have no open water except a patch in the middle, and they begin to terrestrialize some of these, you know, pothole wetland systems. Um, and it, it can take pretty aggressive grazing to hold some of those things back. Is that do you am I getting at what is necessary for some of these grassland birds, or is that a whole different thing than um, migratory waterfowl that we would call shorebirds. Is it similar principles in terms of trying to keep things a little bit open or other habitat attributes that you're trying to target using grazing? Yeah, well, of course, it's species dependent. So right. It's hard to talk about it as community, but but in 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 the the large scale analysis of grassland bird community decline, it's actually the the, the water waterfowl, which is slightly different than the shorebird and waterbird community. But yeah, but that has been the one success story because there's been huge investments in wetland mitigation and wetland restoration over the years in the in the prairie pothole and, and other areas. Um, which in my mind gives hope that if there's focus given to to some of these other bird groups that are declining in the grasslands that if you know if you if you mm. if you put the attention and the focus and the and the right effort on it you can you can reverse that decline. But but sure, I mean you look at you look at long billed curlews, for example, which are in that kind of that mm-hmm. bird community that you're talking about. They they like really short prairie. They're, they're gonna be in the the in quotes overgrazed areas of the prairie you know, in those wet meadow margins and things like that. They don't like the vertical structure. They don't, they don't like the vertical structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's there's going to be other birds like bitterns and things that are, you know, they're going to be vertical structure focused. So it's really about, I think Mark made a good point talking about riparian areas. It's about creating the patches and the diversity and the, and the, and the whole aspect of the, of the community. Um, and I, maybe if I didn't make the point earlier, you know, maybe under more traditional grazing practices that were, I think we're now expanding from, you you had more of this middle ground, well managed. The extremes were, were less focused on, mm-hmm. and that's that's the concept. You know, trying to trying to trying to bring in a little bit more to our our grazing, and it, it's hard because there's trade offs to all of that. But yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think both in the grazing grazer community and in the um, in the wildlife community, there's a, there's a tendency to think that it's going to be all or nothing. That if we apply this kind of grazing here that looks like it's pretty severe, we don't want that everywhere. Therefore, we can't have that kind of grazing there. And trying to find management approaches or encouraging people to think about 
applying management that results in that kind of patchiness seems to be uh, one of the keys. In part, large ranch, large ranch landscapes, again, kind of have an advantage because you have enough room to um, do something different somewhere all the time. And, and to me, I think what I've learned is that's the key. And uh, maybe measuring total biological carrying capacity, what's out there, what's using this landscape, and is it increasing or decreasing? And is, is uh, as we manipulate grazing, you know, we've used the term overgrazing a lot, and obviously it's different than overutilization. And the two terms are different. Oftentimes we overutilize an area to treat it for something. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we tend to not overgraze a lot, although in the case of the sand hills and creating blowouts, I guess we are because overgrazing changes species composition, usually takes it to a, a very early seral state, which might be bare sand. Mm-hmm. And so those are the exceptions rather than the rule. And so we, we want to mix things up. And, uh, and we won't, I think going ahead, we're going to have a focus, not just on monitoring our rangeland, but monitoring the biology that's on our ranches. And that might include soil biology as we again, talk about the regenerative principles that we want to put in. Are we building carbon stocks in our soil? Um, because soil life leads to biological life on top of the soil and maybe something we haven't been focused on as much, but we're certainly going to be going ahead. Yeah, that I think that is pretty important and makes me think of another question that I neglected to write down but wanted to ask you. Uh, I feel like a lot of ranches now are looking for some creative ways to generate revenue from a ranch aside from selling calves. And if if a place is managing for this kind of diversity of habitat and can show that it exists, what uh, do you have any idea what opportunities there are out there for you know capitalizing that on that in various ways? I suppose conservation easements are one, but that's a little bit more. Um, that's a, a different thing than, say, you know, a carbon contract or uh, agritourism. You know, I think um, obviously carbon is in the news a lot. And, you know, what's happening with our uh, global environment, uh, global warming, no matter where you're at in that, um, and how carbon sequestration, whether it's in a forest or in rangelands, plays into that. Um, I, I think it's rangeland carbon, I think, is in its infancy. Um, I, I think the science of actually measuring what's there and knowing whether you're growing or depleting soil carbon is, is I think it's just coming online uh, mm-hmm. so that it could be reliable and counted on because you can't monetize something you can't measure. And, uh, and as they have with forest carbon, it is, am I doing better than industry average? Do I, do I, I don't get paid for just what I would normally be doing. I'm getting going to get paid potentially for increasing above the industry average in soil carbon from the normal. I think that's where this is going to go. That's where the timber carbon industry has, has been. So I think it's, it's new and a, a potentially a way to monetize good management. Other project might be ecosystem services for water holding, um, cleaning of water, certainly Carter um, was able to negotiate with us, um, you know, monetize lesser prairie chicken habitat on one of the ranches so mm-hmm. that essentially we we were paid to create mm-hmm. good habitat for lesser prairie chicken, a species that's that's not been doing well. And I think those opportunities coming up um, should be, uh, will be coming online and maybe developing. Uh, nature tourism or ecotourism, um, we have gotten into that market with our guest service operations, particularly in New Mexico. And, it, and the issue is people that have um, both an interest and a conservation ethic wanting to go and recreate in areas that are focused on that and learn more about it. And again, it, it starts becoming an educational component, um, taking uh, people having having them have a great time recreationally and yet teaching them something about conservation or bison production or wildlife management, um, incorporating that into their, ex- their experience. 
Um, so I, we, we actively are engaged with that and our, our operations are called Turner Reserves. And uh, we, we focus on ecotourism guests, even though in our operations, we, we obviously sell both hunting and commercial, commercial hunting and fishing as well as a way to uh, economically support our operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there seems to be, there seems to be a growing momentum or market for, you know, um, even even economically for the product you're producing in the way it's the way it's raised or produced. And, you know, I think those markets will continue to develop, you know, we talk about the grass fed market, but then there's, you know, there's starting to be these premiums for, you know, Audubon has a program for, for uh, how uh, grass fed animals that, that adds a premium if they're improving habitat for grassland birds. And, and I, I really see hmm. our operations having an opportunity to, as those markets develop, capitalize on that because that's that's really what we've we've tried to do for twenty five years is is you know manage our ranches in a sustainable way that really was promoting those habitats and and so those markets are starting to get some traction too. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about conservation easements because it seems like that's potentially one of the mechanisms that might help provide uh, you know say a ranch family some structured guidelines for how to you know, move toward creating that kind of habitat. Most conservation easements have uh, monitoring and management uh, guidelines that are that are part of the easement, but they're pretty controversial within the world of ranching. You know, for a lot of people, that's just a uh, a creative way of selling out. But I think that the opinion on that has begun to change also over the last 20 years. I'm curious whether there are any conservation easements as part of the Turner properties, or if you consider, you know, Turner Enterprise, Turner Reserves as essentially being that. We uh, we have a, a couple conservation easements on our properties that were put on early on. One in the southeast, uh, one here on the Flying D Ranch had a Ted, his first large acquisition, he put a conservation easement on, and, and then we stopped. We didn't do any more easements. Um, it was, I think there was enough, not just controversy, but uncertainty surrounding how they would operate going into the future. And so we, we haven't. Um, our efforts to move the properties into the entities that Carter described previously, in a way, are, are putting them into a form of keeping them whole and intact. Yeah. And uh, large ranch operations that are uh, commercially viable, that's one thing they do that, that shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, our, our big issues largely with a lot of conservation is fracturing the landscape. It's ranches continually being broken up in smaller pieces and being developed with more roads, more houses, more power lines. All those things affect a lot of conservation values. And uh, so large ranch landscapes that can stay economically viable keep that from happening. And that is a positive thing for everyone. It's very good for the species, but it's also good for open space, longevity down the road. The emphasis, if you will, by a lot of the conservation community on migration corridors, keeping enough unfractured landscapes so the animals that migrate have a way to migrate. Um, A big thing. And that's been part of the push to get easements on some properties to keep them from being fractured. It is one of the tools that I think that, that landowners can use to um, keep themselves economically viable is, is um, conservation easements, but they, they certainly are not without controversy in how they're structured and who oversees or manages them could be a, a big component. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was the Montana Land Reliance that has or had at one time the slogan, cows, not condos. And uh, that's been a pretty effective slogan in that I feel like the phrase has become mainstream so that it's now a figure of speech and not just a slogan that's attached to a, you know, an individual land trust. Uh, and I, I think that idea, too, has kind of come of age particularly because it seems like for many people ranching on its own, meaning just the revenue from ranching on its own, isn't always sufficient to keep ranches as a ranch. And uh, these, these trusts are, are one good way to do that. 
Uh, but if I understand correctly, the way these trusts work, there has to be money coming into a land trust that, that pays the rancher to retire all or part of their development rights. Uh, I know this isn't necessarily your bailiwick, but it would take a lot of money for those to be done in lots of different places. Uh, where does that money typically come from? And do you think that these uh, land trusts are a viable tool for, um, you know, say that the average rancher? You've talked to that a bit, but yeah, the issue of money seems like a significant one. Certainly it is. Um, I think the source of funding for many of the land trusts that would put easements on properties are coming from um, either corporate or wealthy individuals with a high conservation ethic that realize the and understand the importance of, of keeping large open spaces and um, and perhaps fostering or helping management that will um, help to resource, at least maintain, if not get better, store more water, store more carbon, have more biological species on it. And so most entities that are putting easements on are, are getting money from other places, but they understand what that money is being for is to help sustain what I think is going to be incredibly important to us going ahead, which is open space, large landscapes that are still functioning and uh, su su supplying um, habitat, if you will, to a whole host of species. Um, and so I, one side doesn't fit all. I, I think there are some ranching operations where an easement may be a segue into long-term economic viability if it's managed correctly. Other operators may not be able to do that, and, and it's it's a hodgepodge, in my opinion, of of how it works within the industry. Mm -hmm. A part of what I'm hearing is that there, are, if if a if a ranch is managing for a wide variety of ecosystem goods and services, it opens up a number of opportunities for them. Uh, even just economically, you know, internal to an operation, but also some of these other other things that are happening externally. Uh, so I wanted to come back to this Institute for Eco Agriculture uh, because I think what I'm hearing is that you're you have the idea of using that as a way of exporting these ideas and these skill sets to other people. Uh, is, is that the case? And uh, if so, how would you define eco agriculture? It certainly is the case. I think I'll let Carter speak to it. He's He's been more in the middle of it because it may, he and his side of the operation is going to move us that way. Yeah. Well, I think it. Uh, I think it's important to note that, that that accomplishes several goals for us as an organization. You know, there's, there's some strategic planning goals that that's important for. There's operational goals that that's important for. And then kind of a new, you know, exporting or increasing and then exporting our use of science to, to help the industry, you know, is another goal of that organization. But, but it's really this idea, eco-agriculture is, you know, a, a fairly new term. I, I don't know that it's, it's, it's brand new in philosophy, but it, but it brings together several of these ideas of, of, you know, ranching in a way that is supportive or, you know, is enhancing the ecosystem around you and mindful of the ecosystem services and the, the species and the biological diversity Rather than the, you know the, just the focus on maximum production and, and right. or the other side of it just preservation land preservation but rather kind of marrying those two ideas that we can you know especially with um, now I'm going to get out of my my world here but the, the precision precision agriculture you know some of the you know the, that's a that's a huge industry in and of itself but some of the things I've seen from that in terms of you know being able to use that technology to understand where you have unproductive areas of your fields, which, you know, you could put back into, into a wetland because you're not, you're losing money farming in any way mm -hmm. um, because you now know how much fertilizer you have to put in exactly and what, what your, you know, your, your, right. your bushels of return are. And, and really, so it, in my mind, it's kind of using those concepts. Like we can, you know, we can, we can, we can identify the areas or the ideas or the, the objectives from a production side, but then marry them with these, with these ecosystem goals as well. And, and, and we're really excited to look at um, trying to understand that interface better. And in some cases, can we have our cake and eat it too, for example, in, in terms mm -hmm. of production goals, but also our, our ecological goals. So, but it also, it, it also is a way of memorializing 
uh, Mr. Turner's wishes about what, what he wants the future of his places to look at. It, it protects them. It, it provides um, sidebars on, on what can be done on the ranches. Um, and then it, you know, it, it, it provides some certainty to the, to the ranching operations, pre, uh, preserves the, the large landscapes that we're interested in preserving. That, that was his, his goal and direction for what he wanted the places mm-hmm. in the future. But, um, but it's a new concept. It's a, <clears throat> an agriculture research organization is a, is a, is a public charitable structure that's recognized, that was recognized by Congress uh, fairly recently. Um, as far as we know, there's only two other organizations that have uh, filed for and been approved to be an agriculture re- research organization. We'll be the third. And um, and we're just kind of really excited to see, you know, what, what we can make that be for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the term institute usually means research, but uh, but often can mean something more than that in terms of outreach. Uh, what is the, if it, if it's more than research, what is the target audience of uh, the Institute if you're trying to do outreach with it? Mostly landowners? Well, I would, a wide swath. I would say, you know, students, mm-hmm. landowners, uh, natural resource professionals. I, I think, yeah. I think we, we really want to have an operation that has something for all of those. And, and one of the requirements of one of the legal requirements of an ARO or the, or the Institute is that you are conducting research in collaboration or in partnership with a land grant university. So education is a huge part of this that, you know, there'll be students involved, there'll be academic professionals involved working with our staff. Mm-hmm. And that, that in and of itself is a great outreach, you know, because those products will be going through the university system and, and um, you know, seminars and, extension yeah. service and, and all that and, and we see that as a great way to get some of these ideas out too yeah um last question if if you run into the guy in the coffee shop who doesn't think very highly of turner enterprises the guy with 500 cows who's struggling to pay back his operating loan looks like another little drought's coming and you can tell he's feeling pretty antagonistic uh, but he doesn't say so, or maybe after a couple of years, he does say so, you know, what do you, how would you engage him? Can you, uh, for example, you know, do you think there's some ways that people can diversify? Do they buy bison? Uh, do they, you know, work toward being more economically sustainable as a way of improving profits? Uh, any, any thoughts on, you know, how you would respond to that guy who says, yeah, that's all fine and dandy for you guys, but it's tougher here in the real world. You know, the, the, probably the bane of traditional agriculture, and that's my roots. I was raised on a cattle ranch and grew up in it. It is, is that tradition, the lifestyle and the culture Change is very hard. And, um, for those that are very embedded in the traditional, um, culture of, of animal agriculture in the West, it can be a difficult conversation. They just they just can't get past the hurdle of it has to be cows, and we've always done it this way. And so, um, but but if there's a way into it, is just talking to them potentially about you know what could be different in their operation and how it may it may allow them if they're economically more viable to include more family going ahead and. Actually, most ranchers have somewhat of a conservation ethic. I mean, they they, mm-hmm. they really they don't want the habitat to get worse. Many of them, most of them, they really do, but they they may not know how to get it. You know what they need to do to or what they would change to enhance or get better. So just talking to them about some stories of, of what we've done and how things have gotten better and how the economics has help support that from our operations and how we operate would would be the best chance of maybe piquing some interest and maybe finding someone that, that's an early adopter that's looking for a different way. And so I just hope that that would carry the day and you could have a reasonable conversation and, and uh, just share with them from our experience. Another thing I would add and a point I made in the talk is that, you know, Sometimes it takes getting out of your comfort zone or, or out of your box in terms of who you're willing to partner with, who you're willing to get ideas from. And, you know, an easy one to, to pick on is, is state and federal resource agencies. You know, a lot of, a lot of people are skeptical or fearful or, you know, have some trepidation about engaging with them just because of, you know, 
maybe some horse, true horror stories that they've heard or, or a lot of things, you know, falsehoods there. But, but, but we yeah. love our state and federal partners and they have, they have um, helped us achieve many of our goals, helped us learn. Uh, help. Uh, one time I told one of my partners, I said, we probably would have done this anyway, but partnering with you allowed, it to do, allowed us to do it quicker, faster, better. And, um, and so that's just one example, but there's lots of private organizations. We talked about land trusts and, and things like that, but there, there's, there's resources out there that might allow folks to get into other markets or different information than they, than they mm-hmm. currently have. And I suspect for most of those groups, it's pretty rare that they get approached by a rancher saying, how can you help me do this? And if I was in their shoes, I'd be thrilled to be asked and would be exactly. happy to yeah. help. That's the good word for the day. Uh, Mark and Carter, thank you for your time. Thank you. We we appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.